The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Welcome to SCARF. Uh, I'm Céline Taubois, a PhD student in Drama, and I'll be chairing today's session. I'd like to start by thanking Courtney and Scotty for organizing this uh, vital weekly morning for our school, and I hope uh, you'll have a great time with us today. Um, so without further ado, I'll introduce our speaker of the day, who's Dr. Salome Paul. Um, Salome is a current postdoctoral fellow in drama funded by the Irish Council, and her research investigates the transformation of Greek tragedy in Marina Carr's uh, theatre. She's also working in collaboration with Clara Mallon uh, from NUIG on the addition of a collection of essays examining representation and authorship of working class women in Irish theater. Um, so if you'd like to tweet about her presentation, you can find the hashtags um, in the chat. And without further ado, I'll hand over to Salome. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. And thank you, Celine. So this presentation is based on the research that I'm currently conducting as part of a wider project investigating the representation and authorship of working class women in Irish theatre. Um, it will be published in a collection of essays co-edited co by Clara Mallon from NUIG and myself, which is currently under contract with Routledge. The book will be composed of four sections, and one of them will be dedicated to the stereotypes attached to the representation of working class women in the dramatic canon and their still ongoing influence on the contemporary stage. And this is precisely the point of this paper, which intends to analyze the fictional construction of womanhood in disfranchised rural areas in Sing Siada in order to grasp how it frames the contemporary approach to this identity in contemporary place, and more specifically in Marina Car and Martin McDonough's Siada. Uh, yet this research is still a work in progress and is very far from being complete. So yeah, so I'll start. Uh, so gender and class representations have grown into a trope of Irish theatre since the dramatic revival. This specific movement, which occurred between 1899 and 1939, was concerned with offering a theatrical reflection of the nation itself. At that time, the cultural and political elite living in urban areas, and more specifically in Dublin, elaborated the myth of rural island as real island, to quote Declan Kybird. The work of Shannon Casey aside, as it focuses on the depiction of the living condition of the working class in Dublin, the main figures of the dramatic revival, namely Lady Gregory, W.B. Yeats and G.M. Singh, took a particular interest in representing peasants' lives on stage. 
and this participated in the elaboration of the myth of Ireland as a rural nation. Indeed, the fixed figure of the peasant, that is a spiritual character supposedly embodying the authentic and true Irishness, emerged from this theater. Yet, the elaboration of such a representation of peasantry was entirely, from, uh, entirely disconnected from the realities experienced by that social class in Ireland. The representation of women was similarly problematic during the dramatic revival. Conceived as a symbol of the nation for which men should fight, um, female characters' dramatic arc did not rely on the actual realities experienced by Irish women at the time. And the figure of woman emerged from the disconnection of the cultural representation of womanhood and reality. This concept, coined by Teresa de Laurentiis in Cinema Studies and used in Seattle Studies by Sue Ellen Case, designates a fictional gender supposedly representing women, but actually erasing the experience of real women and dramatizing patriarchal values instead. So in, in this presentation, I will first focus on the intersection of these two fictional figures in Sing Siada to highlight the construction of the specific figure of disfranchised woman, which romanticizes and fetishizes that identity. Then using the concept of horizon of expectation coined by Hans Robert Joes, I will explore the legacy of that figure on the contemporary stage as illustrated in the work of Carr and McDonough. The intersection of the figures of woman and the peasant can be traced in several plays authored by Singh, but I will focus on three of them. In the Shadow of the Glen and Riders to the Sea, both first produced at the Molesworth Hall in Dublin, respectively in 1903 and 1904, as well as the Tinker's Wedding, first performed at His Majesty's Theatre in London in 1909, so after the playwright's death. These plays all present female characters living in precarious conditions in the Irish country yet at different stages of their life. Nora, the main female figure of In the Shadow of the Glen, is a young woman trapped in a loveless marriage with an older man whom she believes dead. One night, while she's standing the corpse of her husband, Dan, a tramp seeks shelter in a house. During a short absence of Nora, Dan reveals to the tramp that he is not dead and is playing this ruse to, to catch his wife with another man, which happened shortly after. Uh, Nora is then thrown out of the house and leaves with the tramp. Moria, the central figure of Riders to the Sea, is an old woman who has lost her husband and all of her son to the sea. The play focusing on the discovery of the corpse of one of them and the death of another one. Finally, Sarah, one of the two female characters alongside Mary in The Tinker's Wedding, is a young woman who convinces her lover, Michael, to marry her to the great displeasure of his mother, who stole the bride promise to the, to the priest so he could not perform the ceremony. 
Despite the variety of situations dramatized in those plays, the characters present some striking resemblance. Singh indeed mythologized the identity of poor womanhood through the figures of Nora, Moria, and Sarah. Riders to the Sea best illustrates that point, as Moria has a prophetic vision for casting the death of a last son. The classical subtext of Singh's play sustains a mythologization, since Riders to the Sea, as pointed out by Fiona McIntosh, reframes the ancient Greek tragedy of Euripides, the Trojan women, in a modern Irish context. The connection drawn with Ecuba, the Trojan queen who has lost all her sons during the war against the Greeks, turns Moria into an embodiment of sorrow, of sorrows designed by fate. And while this dramatic device has been used by the 20th century playwrights to question social determinism, as Tom Murphy does in A Weasel in a Dark, Singh is not among of them. This is evidenced in the last lines of Riders to the Sea delivered by Moria. And I quote, no man at all can be living forever and we must be satisfied. This apparently wise words position the character as envisioning the truth about human condition with high clarity because of the hardship she has gone through during her life, a tragedy laying the ground for her greatness. In this regard, Moria's story grows into a tale addressing the ephemeral nature of human beings. In doing so, Singh erases the specific condition of socioeconomic precariousness, which led to the tragedy thus preventing the spectators, as well as the readers of the play, to question the structural class disparities in Ireland and their pragmatic deathly consequences on the poorer categories of, of the Irish population. And this question was all the more essential at the time of the first production of Riders to the Sea, since Ireland was still under the British imperial rule. This col the colonial system indeed entails a specific social economic class structure equating wealth with race, uh, as pointed out by Franz Fanon in The Rage of the Earth, in which he states, and I quote, you are rich because you are white, you are white because you are rich. Like Moria in Riders to the Sea, the characterization of Nora in The Shadow of the Glen and Sarah in The Tinker's Wedding demonstrates a mythologization of the intersectional identity of being poor and a woman inherently conveying a form of superiority. In The Tinker's Wedding, Sarah is referred to as the beauty of Balinacri, a nickname that Mary clarifies, describing Sarah as a grand handsome woman, the glory of Tinkers, the pride of Wicklow, and comparing her to the great queens of Ireland. Sarah is thus framed as the embodiment of some glorious yet fantasized past of Ireland, since Singh conceives it at free from the moral constraints embedded in the lifestyle of the Catholic petite bourgeoisie inhabiting urban areas. Yet, as Sarah plans to marry Michael, she intends to renounce that freedom to conform to the petit bourgeois way of life. 
Mary's objection to the wedding relies precisely on that idea drastically opposing the mode of sociability of the traveler community to the settlers. In doing so, Singh fetishizes the traveler identity, especially as embodied by women, because it encompasses some romantic views on the past of Highland and disregards the discrimination experienced by the traveler community, which may have motivated Sarah to adopt the costume of the settled community. This conception of the traveler identity is thus disconnected from the reality of the communities, since it is solely aimed at criticizing the social and moral system set by the emergence of the bourgeoisie as a domineering class enabled by the rise of modern capitalism, seeing advocating as highlighted by Paul Murphy, and I quote, for restoring the feudal feudal landowner peasant relationship. The same ideology structures Nora's dramatic arc in The Shadow of the Glen. She is indeed portrayed as trapped in the relationship she has with her husband, the institution of marriage being mainly approached by Singh through the lens of economic capital. Nora wondering at some point in a play, and I quote, what way would I live and I, an old woman, if I didn't marry a man with a bit of farm and cows on it and sheep on the Black Hills? Contrastingly, she's promised a life of marvels through vagrancy by the Trump right after having been banned from the house, seeing neglecting again the harsh reality of social destitution. Singh's disfranchised woman, illustrated through Nora, Moria, and Sarah, leans on a social gap, opposing the audience to the characters. Indeed, the plays present poor characters living in the Irish country to middle-class spectators inhabiting urban areas. Although such a discrepancy could have been used used as a device to question and challenge gender and class disparities in Ireland, the romanticization and fetishization of poverty embodied by women in Sing Seattle prevents any reflection on their pressing social matters. Thriving on economic destitution and social exclusion, Underprivileged women stand as figures to be looked up at because they are supposedly wiser and freer than the middle-class spectators, thus embodying a fantasized alternative to a modern life, to modern life driven by materialism and Catholicism. The substitution of this ideology to any attempt to dramatize the actual experiences and so oppressions lived through by poor women constitutes the keystone of the elaboration of the fictional figure of disfranchised woman. Yet, such an approach to representing the intersection of poverty and womanhood is not specific to Sing Seattle, since comparable embodiments romanticizing and fetishizing that identity can be traced back in a variety of dramatic productions on Irish stages, even contemporary ones like in Carr and McDonough's plays. In this respect, uh, Sing's 
disfranchised woman has set an horizon of expectation, which not only frames the characterization of poor women in Irish drama, but also permeates the audience's grasp of this type of character. In Towards an Aesthetic of Reception, Joyce argues that her text never stands alone, but settles in a tradition, reproducing its codes and rules, even if through distortion and subversion. In this regard, contemporary playwrights are consciously or unconsciously influenced by productions from the past, especially when they are considered as canonical, since the canon constitutes, although problematically, the common cultural ground of a specific spatio-temporal area. This tradition also frames the audience reception and interpretation interpretation of the text. And it is through that lens that I would like to examine the, ex the intersection of womanhood and disfranchisement through the characterization of Maureen and Esther Swan in respectively Macdonald's The Beauty Queen of Linan, first produced by the Druid Seattle Company in Galway in 1996, and in Cars by the Borg of Cats, first stage at the Abbey Seattle in 1998. Carr and McDonough rely on some of the constitutive features of disfranchised women, such as said by Singh, to construct the characters of Esther and Maureen, as well as their dramatic heart. The very title of McDonough's play, The Beauty Queen of Linan, alluding to Maureen, displays the same mythologization of womanhood in rural communities as Sarah in The Tinker's Wedding. As for Beisberg of Cats, Carr constructs Esther's identity as partly a traveler woman with a supernatural to the uh, connection to the Borg to evoke the possibility of living outside the social conventions set by the society. Yet, McDonough, as well as Carr, subversively reappropriate those futures of disfranchised women. In By the Borg of Cats, Esther identity does not result in a greater form of freedom for the character, but rather in systematic oppression. She is indeed constantly discriminated against on the basis of ethnicity, as she is referred to as a tinker by numerous characters, using that racist slur to evoke Esther's non-compliance with the patriarchal conception of womanhood institutionalized in Ireland, as Esther is a single mother who conceived a child out of wedlock and living in a caravan by the Borg of Cat. In The Beauty Queen of Linan, Maureen's nickname is Mockery, since, and I quote from one line of the play, she wears horrible clothes, alluding to gender policing in Ireland, which is addressed more extensively through the demonization of female sexuality displayed by the protagonist's mother, Mag, as she slut-shamed her daughter for having sexual intercourse with a man. In Beisberg of Cat and a Beauty Queen of Linan, the subversion of this constitutive features of disfranchised woman reframes the figure from an object of fantasy to the representation of social authors subjected to sexist, classist, and racist violence. Yet, as this violence is met with violence from the characters, Maureen tortures and uh, Moses, 
while Esther takes her daughter's life as well as her own. It lays the ground to a new criticism regarding the representation of womanhood intersecting with social destitution on Irish stages. Victor Merriman bases his analysis of Carr and McDonough's work on the structural role of violence in their plays. He thus asserts that both of them, and I quote, travesty the experiences of the poor to celebrate the new Irishness embodied by middle class and well-educated audiences contrasted with the, contrasting with the backward and violent ways of the characters. This social gap opposing Carr and McDonough's characters to the audiences noticed by Merriman was already in place at the time of the first production of Singh's plays and it led actually the foundation of the political purpose of his theater. And using that similarity, I would like to suggest that both Carr and McDonough reappropriate the figure of disfranchised woman to convey criticism towards Irish society. However, while Singh celebrated social destitution by, pre by presenting impoverished women as wiser and freer than the petit bourgeois spectators, Carr and McDonough show them entrapped by the sexist, classist, and racist mechanisms structuring Irish society. There is no way out for Maureen and Esther, and so no happy ending as the former reenacts the isolated existence of a now dead mother and the later kills herself. Such an absence of resolution evokes the still ongoing discriminations faced by those conceived as social others on the basis of their gender, class, and race, among others in Ireland. Yet, this shift of intention doesn't mean that the subversive appropriation of disfranchised women by Carr and McDonough is completely unproblematic. Since the dramatic revival, the representation of rural destitution is assimilated to a symbol of the past of Ireland. And in foregrounding their place in the countryside, Carr and McDonough work within the specific horizon of expectation, framing the reception and interpretation of, audien of the audiences who mostly live in urban areas. In this respect, also Carr's by the Bog of Cats and McDonough's Beauty Queen of Linan address some ongoing and pressing issues regarding social otherness in Ireland in terms of gender, class, and race. They are presented in a way which doesn't resonate with the realities experienced by the spectators attending the plays. This makes those issues unrelatable and so fictional to the audiences, a point that can be correlated to some extent to the general reception of Carr and McDonough's body of work. Indeed, as pointed out by Patrick, by Patrick Lonergan, audiences attending cast plays often assume the world dramatized is purely fictional, while McDonough is regularly accused of being anti-Irish. Yet, this issue of unrelatability concerning the representation of the intersection of womanhood and poverty is not specific to the work of Carr and McDonough on the contemporary stage. 
numerous realistic representations of that identity when set in an urban context, and more specifically in Dublin, are framed according to the model of Juno set by O'Casey, which is outdated and cannot accurately depict the current living conditions of working class women in Ireland. And as a conclusion to this paper, I would like to question the very possibility of realistic theater to represent the intersection of womanhood and poverty in a way that would challenge the current structure of gender and social oppression in Ireland. Feminist scholars have indeed underlined the problematic reliance of realism on the concepts on the concept of mimesis, which prevents the audience from reflecting on the structural oppression of women in patriarchal societies uh, through the naturalization of the traditional gender roles. Yet, the issue of, reali of realistic theater with representing gender and class oppression can also be approached from the lens of Joe's horizon of expectation, considering the foundational, the foundational role of realism in the formation of Irish drama. Indeed, contemporary playwrights representing the intersection of womanhood and poverty within the frame of realistic theater, consciously or unconsciously, um, reenact either romanticized or outdated models set during the dramatic revival, which cannot adequately address the current social exclusion faced by, by working class women. Since the 2000s, a number of female theatre makers from a working class background have emerged on the, on the Irish stage, like Louise Lowe, Grace Diaz, and Veronica Diaz. And all of them relied on, have relied on radical forms of post-dramatic experimentations to tackle the topic of class and gender oppression in contemporary Ireland, thus facilitating the audience's reflection on social inequalities. Thank you. Thank you very Dumb much. Is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral Sea. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.